it's one of two huge episodes to celebrate the release of the Pylon box set. Michael Lachowski is on the show today, guitar player of the band, and more on that in one second. But first, if you want to get in touch with me, head over to the email address, turnitapunkpodcast at gmail.com. That is run by my brother and show producer and guest booker extraordinaire, Tristan Abraham. Tristan, thank you for all the hard work you do for the show. I love you, buddy. He also runs the Facebook page and the Instagram page, and he can get messages to me. So check out those things, too, on, on Facebook and Instagram, at Turned Out a Punk. If you want to get in touch with me more directly, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram, at left for damien If you want to support the show, the best way to support the show is just by telling all your friends about it, letting everyone know that you know that you enjoy this podcast that we do here each and every week. You can also subscribe to it and rate it on iTunes. Thank you to the people that do. You can also head over to patreon.com and check out Turn It Punk footnotes that we do over there on that uh, platform and other stuff. And thank you, thank you, thank you to all the people that do that. I really cannot thank you enough for helping me keep the lights on. And speaking of helping me keep the lights on, uh, thank you very much to the fine folks at Vans who came aboard a few years ago and have helped me cover the costs of doing this thing. And uh, I really appreciate it. I really appreciate them, uh, you know, and... Uh, you know, and uh, yeah, thank you for them. You know, just a little, little podcast, and here they are saying, you know what, we'll help you cover the, some of the costs on this thing, and I, I, I appreciate that. Thank you very much, fans, and uh, that is that. On to today's show. Today on the show, it's one of two episodes in celebration of this brand new Pylon box set. My friend Brady Brock over there at New West Records hit me up and said, "You would you want to do something with Pylon?" And I. I was like, oh my gosh, absolutely. Because this is a band that, you know, I think depending on where you kind of came to them, you have a very different relationship to them. You know, like there's a lot of people that got into them after the reissue that came out a few years ago on DFA records. You know, there's a lot of people that got into them back in the day and they have, you know, relationships to the scene or how they heard them and things like that. For me, I discovered Pylon just by going to used record stores and I discovered them kind of completely out of context, you know, just found these records by this band that looked really interesting, brought them home and immediately was taken by this band's sound. And I'll get into it a lot more on the next episode when we have Vanessa, spoiler, Vanessa's going to be on the next episode from Pylon. But the vocals were something that really struck me, her approach to that. And then, of course, the guitars, the music, they're catchy. It, it's it's arty. It's, it's, it's a aggressive and abrasive and yeah so they are a a big band for me on my personal journey through this thing so thank you to brady for making this happen because i got to ask all the questions i had you know kind of in the back of my mind for all these years and about their relationships different scenes and oh these are two very different episodes so i don't think you're gonna have to worry about too much redundancy between you know this one and vanessa's episode because, you know, Michael and, and her are talking about completely different subjects. And I love doing these ones where you get two people from the same band talking about their experiences with the band. Because it's amazing how different people experience different things differently. You know, that sounds very obvious. But uh, I don't know. I find it is very much, you know, in the forefront when I do these two people from the same band or three people from the same band or people from the same scenes. Even, you know, it's, ah, I love doing this podcast sometimes. And, and these are those kinds of weeks. 
Sorry this one was delayed. I did have to deal with some technical kind of stuff on the uh, computer side of things. But, hey, we made it happen. We made it happen. Uh, I'm not going to yammer on anymore. Check out this box set, also designed by Henry Owings of Chunklet fame. And if you are a fan of fanzines or magazines that are punk in origin, you are definitely a fan of Chunklet because it is one of the one of the best of all time. All time. I was going through some back issues actually recently, filing some stuff away. So Henry designed this thing. It looks beautiful. It, it weighs a ton from what I hear. I'm, I haven't actually held it in my hands yet, but everyone I've talked to that has said, oh my gosh, is this a heavy duty thing? Okay, well, I am done. I want you to sit back, relax, and enjoy Michael Lachowski on Turned Out a Pond. Michael, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be here and appreciate your interest. Well, as I was just telling you off air, I'm a, I'm a bit of a record nerd. And over the years in my nerdy pursuits, kind of discovered Pylon kind of early into the journey. And, you know, your band's a, obviously a massive influence on a lot of people, myself included. And so, yeah, it's an honor to have you here. And I got to start this off the way they all start off, which is, Michael, how did you get into punk? Do you remember the first time you ever came across the genre? <laughs> uh yeah, I think so. I really do think that it was the Vibrators album. And it's kind of weird uh, in that that album was the thing that Randy and I maybe first sort of just attached ourselves to that we kind of identified as punk. Mm-hmm. And I, I guess you could argue as to how, you know, authentic they were or something <laughs> like that. I don't know. But and the reason I even say that is that over the years, um, I think Randy was more inclined to mention that that group than I was. Like, because you know, I feel like my taste um, accelerated, you know, more, you know, fa- fairly quickly expanded, I should say, into some other groups that over time have have maybe held up better, not just for me, but like for the culture in general, because. I really don't ever hear anybody reference the vibrators and, you know, um, and, but I remember it was easy, you know, it was easy to access because it was a little bit, you know, sort of pop and some ways. And I remember playing it for like one of my best friends. So like in my art school friends and, you know, Randy, who was my roommate, um, everybody be just like, yeah, whatever. But I played it for one of my, um, my super close personal friend from really like the year before. And he was like kind of shocked that I was listening to that. And he was like, Michael, <laughs> that is punk. And I was like, what, what's wrong with that? You know, so <laughs> it was almost like it was transgressive just by, just by going like outside of my art school uh, circle and bringing this up with a friend of mine who was like basically pre-med biochemistry major. And, you know, um, so just by chance, I think maybe Apple Music recommended it to me or whatever, but there was, I think, a 2012 or 13 album by The Vibrators. And I just happened to listen to it last week. And they have a I don't I didn't really investigate this that much. I don't remember anything about that band or the people in it. Mm-hmm. But I did notice that they had brought in some different guest people on this newer album and they they were 
they they re-recorded i think a couple of their like bigger hits from their from the album i was familiar with i have no idea if there are albums in between anyway it's just kind of funny to think back on that that band because yeah that was probably um the first so-called punk band just like my first so-called like rap album was the sequence (laughs) (laughs) i i love the vibrators you know and was it was it pure mania like the one with the big v on the cover or was it v yeah oh pure mania yeah no pure mania Mm -hmm. that record's fantastic like i know what you're saying because i think there's you know kind of a rub on them that they might have been like more of a pub rock band that kind of like shifted over or something like that but uh i don't know i i, I saw them live it must have been like 96 97 and they were great <laughs> they kind of stole the show it was a bunch of like uh, older punk bands getting back together and they were one of the better bands on the bill i don't know i mean these days like when i go back and listen like the first stranglers album um you know, to me, that's a little bit more, uh, it just sounds a little bit more like they meant it, you know, <laughs> and, um, <laughs> um, you know, because even the Sex Pistols, I, I always kind of, as much as I still prefer that album to a whole lot of other albums, um, I still always, I can never really shake the feeling that it was a little bit of manufactured type band, you oh, know, yeah. but, you know, so yeah, it was really good, but but it, but always felt a little you know less genuine, um, and so I don't know. I don't know that I've really listened to a lot of stuff that's straight up punk though. I mean, um, the Stranglers, I guess. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I think I was really into music that just had a few other things going on in it, like Killing Joke and um, it, you know a, a stuff that was sort of challenging and industrial you know, like DNA and mm-hmm. things like that. Um, Lydia, Lydia lunch, like that no New York compilation album was made, had a outsized influence on me and Randy, just cause it was one of the few records that we had that contained some of those uh, groups. I, I mean, plus we did buy a lot of singles and just cause they are in a box somewhere. I don't think about them as often as I do the vinyl. <laughs> um, <clears throat> uh, you know, we had some influences from uh, a fair number of bands, some of which have sort of gone away from, again, just away from being remembered that much, like Prague Vec, you know, mm-hmm. and, um, <clears throat> uh, but yeah, so I had Strangler singles, I think before I had Strangler albums and Gang of Four singles before Gang of Four albums and stuff like that during that period. Well, that's the thing that's amazing about kind of like punk rock is because, you know, obviously it gets taken up very much in a, in a, in a kind of like a postcard way or like a coffee table book kind of way. But the reality was like, it kicked open the door for just so much stuff that just kind of like, you know, like from killing joke to, you know, side effects to like, you know, DNA and Lydia lunch to like, you know, yourselves. Like, I really feel like, you know, punk, especially on this show, you know, Lydia Lunch has been a guest, of course, like it, it, it's very much like the broad term. Like it's just kind of anything that kind of got assumed by that energy almost. Yeah. And, you know, I just just a couple of years ago, I finally got around to reading the um, the book that was compiled, The Oral History of Punk Rock. Uh, Please Kill Me, I think yes. was the name of it. <laughs> a very and, controversial um, book. Yeah. But um 
you know, just in, in terms of like how it kind of lists the band, so to speak, you know, just kind of a review of certain bands of a certain time and place and to, and plus in England too, I guess. But, um, you know, it, it was just kind of brought me back to the, which of those bands was I really paying attention to. And out of the ones in that, um, oral history, I would say it was, um, you know, mostly the Ramones and, um, television. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just love, you know, love the television stuff. But I, again, I don't, you know, it sounded like punk to me at the time, but now that I listen to it, I think about it being more as like Tom Verlaine as a poet or something and the guitar, you know, intertwined guitars and all that stuff. So I still enjoy it, but it doesn't, I, I, I don't know how punk it feels. It probably feels very different now because we're, you know, we're on to the, you know, whatever generation of bands that have been influenced by television. So it's become kind of just part of the musical lexicon. But at the time, I imagine it would have been a lot more kind of shocking to hear, you know, someone singing kind of off key like that deliberately. And, and as you're saying, like the weird interplay with guitars, like that is something that, you know, wasn't echoed in Genesis or wasn't echoed in, in Queen or, or in a lot of other stuff that was happening on kind of a more sort of mainstream level at the time. Yeah, I know. Cause I, I did, I just totally ignored, you know, whatever the mainstream stuff was. And, um, two, two or three weeks ago when Eddie Van Halen died, I realized like, I'm really not that much. Uh, I, I could probably even have named one song except for maybe I, I would have remembered that they did jump, you know, and that's about it. Yeah. And I went, uh, and so I, I started listening to some best hits or whatever. And I was just, I, I couldn't, I couldn't listen to it. I just couldn't. I just didn't think it was interesting at all. The song structures and stuff just seemed so uh, slapdash and with a, I, I, I just didn't get it. So yeah, I don't feel I, I didn't really understand what was going on out on that other side of, of rock music at all. I just never paid attention at all. Well, what were you into prior to the vibrators? Like what kind of stuff were you, uh, you know, a fan of as, as a younger person? Well, I was sort of a, for people in my circle or people that I knew and in my family and all that stuff, I was pretty much the only person that really cared about music in my grade school and my high school. And um, I don't know where I got the passion for it. I think it was just that for me, it was culturally the most, um, just the most exciting, most important thing to me. I did read a lot of novels and I, of course, watched TV like every other suburban American kid. And um, especially when I got to college, you know, I got caught up on watching a lot of uh, films. But really, by the time I was get, getting into college, I was starting to get really lost. I was losing, I was just losing, like, I didn't know what I was supposed to be listening to anymore. It all, I was I was finding myself buying like you know the fifth album by some bands or whatever and just like nah you know I was just uh, like you know the fourth or fifth album by Jethro Tull or whatever and I was like God I'm just not feeling it and so somewhere I missed out on some information <laughs> because the way I was getting my information wasn't very sophisticated or or thorough I didn't have anybody that was mentoring me in music. Um, I don't 
really remember, you know, like even like I would maybe read Rolling Stone or something, but, uh, or the great speckled bird out of Atlanta, I think was the name of it. Um, but I, I don't, I just didn't have that much guidance. And then I, the, the one thing that I did have that I, maybe it didn't influence what I purchased as much as, uh, but another way for me to listen to music is that, uh, it's kind of in the early days of non-commercial FM radio stations out of college stations. And so being in the Atlanta area, I did start listening to WREK from Georgia Tech. And and then a little later than that, I think uh, um, the one started up uh, from Georgia um, State University. They I don't remember their call letters because they basically promoted it as 88.1 or whatever the number was. And, um, but anyway, I was kind of lost. I was almost like starting to listen to jazz and trying to figure out, you know, music that was maybe more sophisticated and interesting. But of the things that I still sort of care for that I was listening to as I approached, um, college and stuff was like probably Frank Zappa. And for some reason, I just got deep into um, this uh, solo uh, albums by George Harrison, Mm. Um, partly just because of that kind of uh, sort of philosophy that's embedded in those. And so I got rescued um, a little ways into college but i was completely missing out on and and maybe wouldn't have even liked it but on stuff like the velvet underground and um you know the and johnny thunders and stuff like that and uh other things that might have primed me a little bit more for what i got into eventually i just bought a but i bought records and i listened to a lot of music and then i I would save up my money and and then buy like an eight track recorder. And then I would record all my, I I wouldn't buy pre-recorded tape because I knew that the quality of those was crap. I just, you know, read stereo review magazine and all this stuff when I was in high school. And so, uh, but I got an eight track portable player, you know, one of the ones that had batteries on one half and the player, um, and then on the other side was just a, a speaker and you could separate them up to six feet or so. And so I recorded all my a lot of my vinyl onto 8-track. And then I took the 8-track records with me, 8-track tapes with me and the player to high school. And I played in the classroom and I played out on the front yard and all this stuff. So I was always the one that had music mm-hmm. and, you know, had the wherewithal to bring it along and became sort of the de facto DJ in a lot of uh, social environments, different ones. And that carried over pretty much on into art school and being in the band. And even after that, I, then I did become a DJ for real, you know, locally. How aware were you of the sort of Sex Pistols show that happened in Atlanta? Did that make local news at the time? Yeah, I mean, because it was making national news. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, definitely. Um, that's that actually is part of what fed into my lack of interest in them. Like mm-hmm. all of the, <laughs> all of the hype, you know, and all the alarm, all the hyperbole or whatever about it uh, was just it just seems so crazy and ridiculous. It's, I mean, it, like. There was some show, what was his name? There was some show where everything on it was just like 
asinine and kind of over the top. Like maybe it was, is it Jerry Springer? I think that's it. Some, some TV show where everything was just about like, you know, absurd, you know, people yelling or I don't know what. And that's the way I felt about the Sex Pistols whole shtick, you know, and it wasn't necessarily their fault, but just, but, but, um, but of course, you know, McLaurin was probably like pleased as punch that they were getting that kind of publicity. And it was to me just a complete turn off. I felt like uh, because of the publicity to go to that show would just be just so obvious and so dumb because you'd be surrounded by all these people that were kind of there for the wrong reasons. So I had no interest in going and I was a little bit surprised like how many of my more sophisticated friends, um, they did go. I mean, they actually took it seriously and they went. And I guess they just went because they knew it was sort of a, maybe they didn't mind that it was a media circus, but it turned me off. And so it wasn't until sort of after the fact, like after they broke up that I was, I was willing to actually, you know, listen to their, uh, buy their album and listen to it. And then I fell in love with, with the album. Um, so, yeah, I did not care, and I didn't care that I missed it. So were you seeing any bands that were kind of playing locally at this time? Like, were there, you know, local bands that would be opening these shows, or you'd see, you know, smaller shows that would be happening around where you were back then? No. Uh, live music, um, for me, was more like <clears throat> national recording acts at that level. You know, I was like you had to go back to when I was like 14 or whatever, but I was like really into Alice Cooper. So I, I think it's 14 or 15. I got my parents to drop me off at an Alice Cooper concert and pick me up afterwards. And um, <clears throat> uh, then I saw them again and I, I, I went to a lot of shows in Atlanta. I mean, I lived on the outskirts of, of the Metro. It was like really suburbs. Um, they did eventually build a perimeter around Atlanta and I lived on just on the outside of the perimeter. So it's not like I lived in town. So I, but I would go all the way downtown to go to shows at the Atlanta municipal auditorium and saw like Pink Floyd and yes, opened up for them and uh, saw spirit and blood rock and, uh, <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> Well, I, I really only like that one album, you know, the 12 Dreams album, because I've tried listening to their other stuff and I just am less interested in the rest of it. It's just sad. But um, so I did go see kind of a lot of bands for uh, somebody without a lot of money. And, um, you know, then I saw, saw some bands like at the Omni and I'm trying to remember like what now. Um I saw Led, Ze uh, Led Zeppelin, you know, at the Atlanta Fulton County Stadium outdoors and that kind of thing. But um, but now I don't think I had access to any or, or I don't have much recall of anything that was live. And it, I mean, that was local that was live. And if I did, it didn't make much of an impression on me because I, I mean, maybe I maybe I did. And I just don't even remember. And then when I got to college, um I would go see stuff like Tom Waits and things like that, you know. Um, um, what's the guy's name in Atlanta? The Aquarium. Um, 
Oh, I, I don't know. Society, um, uh, Bruce Hampton okay. and things like that, you know, acts like that would come to the university and I would usually go see them. They were free and, um, but still the programming, you know, wasn't, you know, it was worth going to see, but it wasn't necessarily what I would have bought tickets to and, and, and driven to another city to see it, but it was right here on campus. I, I don't really know that live music was that much of a thing for me. My musical music experience was through vinyl. And that's one of the reasons that our little scene in Athens, like with the B-52s performing in somebody's kitchen, it was like smack right there in your space, right? Right, you know, we, we had so many house parties and everything. And then those house parties just, we're transformed by the fact that now we're like sticking live, you know, live music right into the middle of these smallish uh, spaces like somebody's kitchen or living room. And it just felt so exciting, you know, and um, I don't think we really ever went to see anything live in town because like there was this one place called the last resort and I think the sign said, what would it have been? It had three things. It was like folk, blues, and whatever the third thing like that <laughs> would be. I can't remember what the third category was. Was it bluegrass maybe? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, something like that. Um, and then there were, you know, there were like big giant beer hall type places with cover bands. I mean, it's not like I never went to those, but I, I went to those once or twice as a freshman, maybe just because you're supposed to go check it out. And it just wasn't that interesting at all. Yeah, totally. So I, I was and, and then so when I really did start having live music, it was, uh, you know, it, in, in, in my friends' houses and, you know, and then soon after that. And my friend, my friends were the, the the people performing. You know, it was a very intimate um, scene for a really long time. I mean, it really, it was a real tight knit scene of a pretty large number of people. But you know, everybody was always there, almost. You know, you we were just all this sort of this this big uh, family kind of on a party on a party train. So how long after the Sex Pistols show in Atlanta would these uh, B-52 shows have taken place? Uh, gosh, I don't know. Maybe almost a year? I, I don't really remember, though. Somewhere in that, six months to 14 months. I don't really know. So would they have been, I guess, the first sort of punk band, you know, new music band kind of going in, in the area back then? Yeah. Yeah, I suppose so, because um, they, they, you know, they maybe, maybe over in Atlanta, the fans were already together. And I don't know if I ever saw them, if I saw them before, after the B-52s. And then also um, Tom Gray had um, the Brains um, in Atlanta. So, you know, they kind of famously wrote Money Changes Everything, and that got covered later on. Um, and then in Athens, the B-52s, really other than them, the only other thing, and it was who we opened for, for our first show was a band called the Tone Tones, 
but I think they formed after the B-52s and all of them were good musicians, but they just, um, maybe the concept or the personalities or something didn't gel. I don't really know what happened, but, um, so that broke up, but it did ended up, uh, it, it ended up producing the method actors because two of the, two of the members of the tone tones became the method actors and the method actors recorded and toured and stuff. Um, around the same time that Pylon was active. So in the sequence of bands, as far as the way we remember it now, and this may not be entirely accurate, but it was the B-52s and then the Tone Tones and then Pylon, and the B-52s had moved away by then and the Tone Tones broke up. So um, initially, I mean, at least for a brief period of time, Pylon, you know, might have been it and, until like maybe... The, then the side effects were formed and oh, okay and stuff like that. So it wasn't, <clears throat> stuff was happening pretty quickly, you know. Um, Pylon played their first show in February of 79. And um, then we played in New York City for the first time in August of 79. And then we were back up in New York City a month later. And on and on and on it just like it, it really went at a pretty pretty fast cliff so was that raz recording that's on the box set recorded before you guys played your first show um no no we had already been playing for a good while but it was recorded before we went into a proper studio with the intention of recording um a single to be put out on db records which wasn't until I guess maybe the end of 79 that we recorded it, but it wasn't released until um, 1980. And that was um, cool and dub. Okay. But um, so the RAS tape was recorded. Now, I just need to ask him what month. I don't know. Um, it was recorded, you know, sometime probably in the fall of 79, because just based on, some of our earlier songs that we ended up getting rid of um, from the set, uh, just from the repertoire, really, uh, are on there. But then um, Cool <clears throat> cool and Dub are both on there, and they were extremely new when we recorded them for DB um, records, So, uh, especially Dub. So, so it's it must have been recorded like right around the same time that we did end up going into the studio to record a single. So how long was the scene kind of revolving around these house shows? Like did it eventually move into clubs? I would imagine at some point, but you know, like were you guys still playing these shows in these houses? It was based around house shows actually for a, a pretty good while because, um, <clears throat> the B-52s, like, for instance, that place I mentioned that sh that played um, blues, folk, and, and bluegrass, let's say. Oh, maybe it was jazz. I don't remember. That could have been up there on the marquee um, <laughs> on their sign, basically. But um, they the B-52s did manage to play there and also at the university um, before they moved out of town. But, um, but for us, no, we were just playing at parties and... Um, and there was this other place in town called Tyrone's O period C period, just terrible naming convention. Um, <clears throat> and I guess they had programming a little bit like the other, the last resort, but maybe a little more rock oriented or something. And, you know, 
whatever the bands were, some of them were probably were local, I think. And um, I remember like the sound man at that place. He used to kind of bitch that our scene just got so hot and so big and so well regarded so quickly. And he's like, oh, people have been making music in this town for years. It's always been a good music town and all this stuff. But I'm I'm still at a complete loss to even like think of the name of one band that he you know of whatever that scene was that somewhat preceded us, um, but um, they they the, you know we went to that club and wanted to play there and asked and they said um, you know they they just didn't have any interest in this like new music scene like it was it had a bad reputation or something probably because of the national press about some you know that one thing with the sex pistols or something yeah. but so we somehow got them to give us like a tuesday night and we and we told them we said you know a lot of people are going to come if you let us play and they're like well we'll give you a tuesday night so we played and I think 200 people showed up and they were just, you know, amazed. And after that, they said, you can play any Friday or any Saturday you want. <laughs> and so our scene essentially like just took over that club. Um, it became like the place where everyone played and REM played and they got, they finally got with the program. They started bringing over bands from um, elsewhere, Gang of Four and XTC both played there. But one February or winter when there was snow on the ground, the place caught on fire and burnt down. So then that necessitated and helped sort of precipitate other changes, you know, which venues, because by then the scene was undeniable. You know, the 40 Watt Club had opened up as a, um, in another small, smaller space and all this stuff. So, um, but up until we kind of cracked that open, yeah, there were there were quite a few house shows, quite a while. One of the things I find most fascinating about punk is like where it took hold. Like from what you're describing, prior to your bands and your wave and generation, there wasn't much going on in Athens in terms of music at the time. And then here it is; it just explodes, you know, in in this city of all places. I, you know, I know because like we got, we were interviewed like so often. Um, we were always like getting interviewed by the local weekly or um, when we were touring and radio station, you know, college stations. And um, um, I mean, we, it seemed, I, I guess there, I don't know, I guess there were, I don't know if there were more print outlets or if it's it just the local weeklies and stuff. But anyway. Um, people were always very curious about, you know, Athens, like why Athens and all that. And <clears throat> I mean, I, I always kind of downplayed it because my thinking was like Athens better not get too full of itself because there, who's, I mean, this is just the result of like young people being in a college town. It is that because I, I, I feel like I remember being told like, oh, yeah, there's like similar very cool scenes like in uh, Lawrence, Kansas and um, here and there. Uh, you know, Austin, whatever. And, and so I didn't want Athens to like pretend that it had anything that it had the market cornered on being original. I kept just thinking it was a matter of, you know, when that all these other scenes were going to emerge and stuff. And, you know, 
I really don't know how that turned out because like Athens has managed to maintain, I mean, not just from that period and, but it has managed to sort of maintain a reputation. Um, and I, and I think it's somewhat deserved, um, you know, one big benefit though, to Athens having such a huge reputation that has, has, um, maybe persisted is that REM chose to stay in Athens, stay put, and then also just got like hugely famous and influential. And that went a long way to really giving Athens like the opportunity to, to, to build up a real, um, some real depth of like people that wanted to live here, wanted to stay here, wanted to move here in order to make music. But also in terms of the other infrastructure, aside from clubs, like um, having a, a magazine and then recording studios and having, you know, those people on the scene that are in the in these various um, roles that um, they're they're often overlooked and unsung, but they're the people that just because they're not on stage that are just as important, you know, and and do a lot of the work. Um, and it's gotten more and more like that in Athens now that there's um, a place that's named after um, a young musician. In his um, memory, his family started a facility in Athens named after him. His, his name was Nucci Phillips. <clears throat> and he, um, uh, they, they created a place to help people like him who is a musician and, and had uh, mental health problems. And that place has just become so influential. They have like a summer camp for 13 to 17 year olds or something like that. And, um, Fed, train people, you know, being a rock band and all this stuff with really good instructors. And, you know, there's, there's just so many things that are contributing. The University of Georgia's business school has a, a, a music business program, like a certificate level program that anybody at the university, I think, can take. And it's being taught by David Barbie. He used to run and still is partner in one of the major recording studios here, but was in the band Mercyland and some other bands. And David Lowry from Cracker and now Andrew Rieger from Elf Power all teach there. And it's just, you know, great. We've got Kindercore vinyl uh, record pressing plant in Athens that opened up about three years ago that's pressing all of these records for our box and the reissue of Gyrate and Chomp. So Athens is like really um, held it together. It's amazing how much, you know, just geographically even, uh, this punk scene that you your bands were a part of and obviously everything that kind of came out of it, you know, the pylon kicks off, it, it, it changed Athens profoundly. Yeah, you know, but it's uh, it's still it's still a, a product of its time and some other dynamics. Uh, I didn't even have an appreciation for certain dynamics that had happened at the University of Georgia before I arrived here that I think had a huge in, in influence on all of us at the art school, especially apparently there was like a desire on the part of the governor or the, or somebody in the state government that we really needed to, to, to um, they wanted to invest, invest money and 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 be very you know deliberate about building up the uh, University of Georgia. 
So there was a bunch of uh, new hires and a bunch of these people got hired, you know, four, six, eight or so years before um, my group comes comes waltzing in. And as a result, the art department, which was already pretty big and significant, especially in the whole of the Southeast, but I mean, it's pretty pretty big and, and very early art uh, art department, you know, at, for um, the United States and at, at a state university. But anyway, that, that had started back in the uh, 50s, but a little bit before I came here, they were getting all these younger, much more, uh, you know, like, I don't know, liberal professors from other parts of the country, you know, like hiring them from New England and wherever, um, and so that, that there were a lot of there was a lot of energy already kind of churning, and we just and just our era, you know, we we managed to escape being drafted in the Vietnam War, and um, there was just a lot of different factors that kind of just kind of supported what we were all doing. I think it made it pretty easy. I don't know if it made it, you know a guarantee that we were going to be interesting and creative, but, but it was definitely a, a kind of fertile ground for us, especially laid over this like fairly dull, you know, uh, state of the city of Athens and stuff like that. I mean, it was, um, it was the university and that was about it. So by going off of the university and moving out of dorms and living in all these in-town neighborhoods that at the time were sort of being abandoned for the suburbs, just like the downtown merchants were sort of leaving downtown for the mall and strip malls and stuff. So we kind of had, we kind of had the infrastructure of Athens like kind of to ourselves for quite a while. (laughs) (laughs) How did the relationship with DB records come about? Because I think, you know, you're the, or cool dub, I should say is the second or, or maybe it's the third release on the label. Uh, it's somewhere like that. Yeah. Like the second or third. Um, well, Danny Beard, uh, and a partner, Harry, I don't remember Harry's last name, um, opened up this, uh, basically a used record store in Atlanta and it is still there. Same location, same concept, still very popular all these years later. And he just, was close enough to the people that were doing interesting things like the people and the fans that lived over in, in um, Atlanta. So <clears throat> I don't remember how he got connected to the B-52s. I've heard the story. I just don't remember it. Like he might've been up in New York for a fan show or, or went up to see the B-52s play that first show up there or something. I don't remember all of that, but um, as far as those of us in Athens were like, at least me, I was really aware of it. It was, it's mostly happened after he, uh, put out the record by the B-52s and, um, you know, we got to meet him and everything. And I think Vanessa will remember the details way better than me, but, um, yeah, he was sort of learning how to run a record label on the fly the same way as the way we were learning how to make music on the fly. Um, and um, we didn't really 
know how to be a band or anything either, but that wasn't a big priority for us. It was um, it just something that just kind of kept evolving. It was almost like a, as the carpet was being rolled out in front of us, we were like, well, we might as well walk on it kind of thing. Like we we weren't really pushing for any of this stuff, but like if opportunity, if offers are made like, Hey, would you like to record a single? We'd be like, Oh yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> yeah. You know? So, yeah. so we just kind of just sort of followed along. Um, and um, so, yeah, he gave us a lot of freedom and, um, but I mean, we didn't have very much money invested in these projects. So our, um, our approach to how to record wasn't very, um, you know, wasn't very deluxe. We had to, we had to make a lot of decisions, uh, you know, as we went along, like we'd record a song and go like, ah, oh no, I think we can do that better. Can we, can we do that again? And they'd say, well, do you want to record over the one you just did? And we're like, oh no, no, not, maybe not. Can you keep, can, can we keep two of them? And they'd be like, um, you know, at the beginning of the recording session, they'd be like, sure. But like by the middle of the recording session, well, you're going to have to decide because we can't keep two of everything because we don't have enough tape. <laughs> so, you know, there, yep. <laughs> uh, it was always risky as to whether or not you were going to be able to do it, play it again better. Um, so, um you know, and, and we would, we would record like an entire album and then mix it, you know, and whatever, three, four days, something like that. Um, but, uh, you know, as far as I'm concerned, that's probably for the best because, um, people get very tempted to start tinkering way too much when they go into recording studios. And I was like, <laughs> yeah. I don't like live albums, but I do like, I did like our band live and I didn't want our band to be augmented with a bunch of extra parts and um, filler and filigree and all that. I also wanted to talk to you about going to New York for the first time. It was that uh, first show that you played there that I, th I think the, according to legend, like the, the B-52s like helped you get the show or, or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Well, they made a recommendation to uh, the to the bookers at Hurrah, the club Hurrah. Okay. <clears throat> and the um and the woman who had initially booked it, um, she was uh, you know, she she had a very untimely death. Um, oh my god. And uh, was uh, struck by a taxi in New York and died from it. Wow, that's horrible. We ended up getting a call uh, a little later, uh, uh, weeks or so, you know, after all of that kind of settled out for them. And um, Jim Farratt had, I think, taken over the booking. And he said that he was going by the uh, commitments that um, she had made and he was wanting to follow up with us. And so um, I think what happened is that – I talked to him and he said so we want you guys to you know we have you come go ahead and come up here and you can open for somebody so um i remember him just saying like i've got like two different slots you know um and one of them was something along the lines of lena lovich but maybe not necessarily lena lovich i'm not real sure and then the other one was Gang of Four. And then it was like, uh, yes, please, we'll take the Gang of Four slot. <laughs> you know, I, I tried to say that without sounding too excited because 
that was like the most amazing opportunity. Yeah. And um, so that's how we got our first show up there. And then after getting booked there, it was um, pretty easy to just ask a club in Philly and the rat in Boston. Um, at, at, at Philly, it was the hot club. And just, you know, Pylon has already gotten booked by Hurrah. They're opening for the Gang of Four such and such a date. Are you interested in booking them? And it was like, yes. You know, it was just super easy. In fact, we ended up, the hot club had already booked an opening band to open for Gang of Four. And they said, well, if you can open for them at Hurrah, then you can open for them here too. So <laughs> they put a third band on the bill. <laughs> um, so was it like a mini tour that you did with them? Then? Just those three shows, yeah. And then we got back and um i don't know uh, a month or so later the interview magazine had a tiny little live review by glenn o'brien two paragraphs of that show and gang of four and that then we all of a sudden had our then we all of a sudden had like almost the only piece of press we really needed glenn o'brien in interview magazine and then that was good for everybody so <laughs> It's real easy moving forward. Oh, I bet. Um, do you remember who the other band in Philly was that night that you played? No, not at all. But Vanessa might know because she has done research and tried to, you know, figure stuff out about some of the uh, past stuff. And, you know, sometimes it's it, if you really want to spend some time on Facebook and all that, it, a lot of this stuff has been figured out by looking at uh, ads that people have kept you know, strip, strip, strip ads and, and calendar books. Like somebody, God, I can't remember what, oh yeah. So somewhere on Facebook, we saw one of the most amazing things. It's like a handwritten address or calendar type book. And I think it's maybe an entire month, but it's whatever. It's at least like a lot more than, a, it's like a week or a month's worth of stuff all written in hand for uh, TR3. Oh, wow. And, um, and Pylon is in there, you know, but like, we're like playing on like whatever Wednesday. And then like the next day is Bush Tetris, and, <laughs> you know, the day before uh, it's just like, you, you read like the lineup of a band in just like a week during that era at a small club like TR3. Yeah. And it's just like, holy shit. <laughs> we were right in there, right in the middle of this, you know, stuff was just happening like crazy all the time. And then plus back then we could go to New York and I don't know why, but nobody seemed to mind if we played, you know, shows all around town on the same trip at different size clubs and different times of the week and all that. Everybody was pretty cool with it. We tried to space them out. We'd check into the Iroquois hotel and we'd, you know, maybe play a show in New York and then we go play over in Trenton and then maybe play at Maxwell's in Hoboken and then maybe play another one in New York and then drive to Boston and play and then drive back to New York and play another show or something like that. Oh, for the days before radius clauses. Um, Going back, did you kind of perceive any differences that were going on in these places that you were? Like the, the difference between like a New York or a Philly or a Boston scene back then? I it's hard for me to remember, you know, I, I just was so, all of it just seemed natural or something like it just seemed like this was all meant, you know, 
I mean, not, not meant to be in a uh, sense of destiny or, or fate, but just like, you know, you're just there and that's just the scene and we're a part of it. And, you know, we were, we were headlining, you know, for most of what I'm talking about. Like we didn't really have very many opening slots, um, you know, on and off throughout the um, band's career we did. But um, so like, I don't know, I guess if you're headlining and people at these clubs want to hire you and people who pay to come in and see you want to come, that it just all seemed normal um, about the only one that I can really even remember having a little bit of a different vibe. I think it was called the underground and it was in Boston and the, um, ground floor of a dorm. Oh, weird. I believe, I think it used to be the laundromat or I, I, I don't remember the story behind it, but you know, like that was still a big city compared to Athens, Georgia, but it was more of a college kind of and some of the other places we played that were more of college gigs, like straight up college, playing at colleges, um, they they had their own vibe. Honestly, I don't think we ever did any of that though until Pylon reformed in the late '80s. I don't I don't remember that in the first era of Pylon that ended in '83. If colleges were really into um, a band like Pylon. But the underground, you know, that kind of was. I, I don't know. I just enjoyed it all. Uh, I mean, we had some cities that uh, just sort of innately seemed like their scene or their clubs uh, were much more enthusiastic about Pylon and always super reliably supportive of the band. Yeah, yeah. So we ended up falling in love with certain cities or, or, for, or you know, felt like they had fallen in love with us kind of thing more so than other cities but in general it was always good we didn't have too many real flops um if there was a a big flop a lot of times there would it would be because there was some other circumstance that we weren't aware of or the people who booked us didn't take into account you know competition from some other event or i don't know what but how much interaction did pylon have with the, the no wave scene that was kind of happening in New York or getting going in New York at the same time. You know, I none because I, one of the things about being in the band is I don't remember ever going out to see music. You know, the only music we, we were kind of busy. Yeah. We, we were fairly booked and busy. <laughs> I mean, we saw a lot of music, but it was other people's, you know, on the same bill with us probably. Um, I guess that's another irony of being in a band is that you, it's, I don't know, just back in Athens, I'd see a lot of bands, but I don't remember going to see bands very much. I mean, I remember going to see the Ramones at Irving Plaza um, when we were there for, you know, a show. I mean, to do our own shows. That's about the only one I can remember. Oh, that would have been, I'm sure, like an unbelievable show. But you guys toured Canada, right? Like you, you, you did a little bit of touring up here. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, <clears throat> just, uh, you know, the main one was just going up to Toronto, but then, um, later on, um, or on different occasions and definitely opening for gang of four, we played in Ottawa and Montreal. 
um, in Toronto. So those are the only three cities we ever played, but I, I don't really remember how many times. So from the sounds of it, you guys did do, you know, like touring early on, or was it more just kind of like driving directly for one show that you had book and then, and, you know, then driving back or, or just staying there for a couple of weeks and playing a few shows kind of in and around there, or was it really like touring? Yeah, uh, no, we didn't. What we what we did, like you know, initially, um, like when we let, when we played our first show in New York, on that trip that included Philly and Boston, we made zero effort to try to find any other shows in between, and and we hadn't even played in Atlanta yet. I mean, I was I, I had this like conviction that that nobody was going to really welcome Pylon or understand it outside of. Um, like true like cultural capitals you know (laughs) and and the idea that we would go and play along the way up there just uh, until we added dc we didn't have any other place to stop and we added dc fairly early on um so we would just drive up to the northeast and we would play like providence and go up and play into um northampton and um um you know, sometimes some other parts of New England. And then on other trips, we would make it over to uh, the Midwest and play in Minnesota, uh, in Minneapolis and Chicago and things like that. And then there were the big trips out West where we basically went straight out to California and then kind of straight back. So we never made it up to the, the Northwest, even though that scene was still, um, well, up until 83, I don't even know if it was, a scene i don't remember but in in pylon number two it seemed like we should have gone up there and we never made it so it was usually just depended on which direction we were going in i guess a longer tour might have included going to the midwest and parts of canada and the northeast but i don't i don't really remember you did make it over to england though right and and play some shows at least there in europe yeah i mean that was all part of the plan when armageddon partnered um with db records to release gyrate in the uk and also to license it outside elsewhere so armageddon was involved they had a guy over in atlanta peter dyer i believe dyer was his last name and so he was the person who I guess had the enthusiasm and the interest and worked with Danny on how to sort of split the band, you know, um, uh, publishing or print, you know, uh, publishing these albums elsewhere, but they also footed the bill for Pylon to go over there and do a bunch of shows in, um, December of 1980. And it was great. Um, they hired a, flat for us to stay in and hired a tour manager who took care of us, you know, on a daily basis. And then they hired, um, uh, two guys or a company that had two employees that, that had a truck that carried the PA because the PAs weren't provided by the venues in most cases. So, um, they would, they would get there before us and have already been setting up the PA before we got there. And we would mostly return to the flat every night. You know, we um, 
but we, we would just do a lot of out and back uh, trips outside of working out of London to most of the venues. And then when we went, when we went a little further afield, um, I think only three times did we spend the night somewhere else once in Blackpool. And then we went up and um, wherever Hugo Burnham lives, um, we stayed at his house. Maybe that was, um, I can't remember, where was it? Gang of Four from Liverpool or, uh, oh, Leeds, right, okay. And then, um, and then I think we spent one night in Manchester with some American um, expats that were, I don't know, like big enough fans of music and stuff like that, that the club, you know, the club even set that up. So um, we, we had one or two shows that got canceled, um, you know, and uh, we got to play at the Marquee in London. The Soft Boys uh, were on the bill with us, which was a huge gift on their part, you know, to, to, um, bring their heft to that bill so that our band could, you know, sort you know, do okay at a club like, like that in, in London, we got really good press. All of those, all those magazines wrote us, wrote about us every week, all those weeklies. And we did lots of interviews at pubs and it was hilarious because, um, well, you know, the whole schedule over there, especially then, was like really early. I mean, the shows were all over by 11 p.m. And then at Hurrah, uh, I mean, at Danceteria, you know, they didn't, the headliner didn't <laughs> didn't play until like 3 a.m. and stuff. Um, so the idea of getting up early to us, I, I mean, we were used to sleeping late and and staying up till, you know, three or three or four. And so it was really weird to be over there and this tour guy would come and wake us up and say, come on, come on, you got, you got an interview. We've got, you know, we got to get going. You got an interview in half an hour. And so we just barely get dressed and get in the car. And he would always arrange for all these interviews to take place at a pub at like 10 AM. And um, he'd immediately go and, get all of us a pint of beer <clears throat> and so it was it was different and fun it's the little things that separate the cultures you know like drinking for breakfast <laughs> <laughs> yeah the food and um the, the hours were the two main you know odd things about being over there when you started playing you know nationally and ultimately internationally were there any bands that you kind of felt a strong kinship with or that you were part of like a, a, you know, part of a larger scene with at the time or that, you know, even that were kind of inspiring to you? Well, I, I really would have to go back to the Gang of Four. I mean, they were an influence on us. Um, I do think that, that that's one example where the influence, you know, was more literal, like like specific to um, certain parts about the songs. Um, but that's easy to say because then when we played with them, it seemed to be a good fit. Um, I mean, we still had like wildly different energies or sort of, you know, agendas. Um, and then we ended up, uh, you know, also becoming friends with them and really, um, got brought along on some of their tours as much just uh, uh, for 
as much out of just friendship and and just um, you know generosity as it was because, for uh, the reasons of any kind of like absolute need for Pylon to be their opening band for any reason. So yeah, um, I would name them for sure. Um, but wait, are we talking about bands that influenced Pylon or? Well, yeah, certainly bands that influenced you, but also just bands that you felt part of a scene. Oh. You know, like like looking back, were there bands that you you know you would you would play with or you felt were kind of on the uh, same? Mission of Burma was another one, but a lot of this is just sort of like because we found ourselves, you know, in such similar circumstances. Um, we ended up becoming good friends, like, uh, or just having like nice, friendly, fun relationships with people like the the other bands, like the Feelies. And then in, um, in, in Philly, we stayed with the, um, some of the girls that were in uh, Head Cheese. And that band, um, I think they were art students. And that band, um, some of those people in that band are, are who started Book of Love. And then um, over in Boston, there was a girl, I think they were all girls. Um, you may have to ask Vanessa who, what the name of their band was. They're the, they're the we used to stay with them too. And we, we, didn't, we didn't usually stay with people. We usually stayed in hotels. Um, if we stayed with people, it was really just by choice, you know, because they invited us and it seemed like it would be more fun in a, in a way to kind of get to know the place better and to know the people better. But I can't remember Martha Sweatsoff's and company's band name right now. It's it's funny because you, you hear about Black Flag and, and DOA on the West Coast always talked about as this band that's kind of, you know, building the network that bands still, you know, kind of tap into today when they tour and it's it's interesting that on the east coast there's kind of like a parallel thing happening just about the exact same time frame too with yourselves and all these bands kind of kind of building that same sort of network well yeah the network you know that we were helping to kind of learn and um establish for ourselves that was um in large part just um, passed along to us by the B-52s as a, as a recommendation of like which hotels to stay in and, and which clubs and, and here's who to call. Here's the name of the booking agent or the um, that kind of thing. And, um, and so it became like just, you know, de rigor for all of the other Athens bands that came after us. And they all had like basically the same, the similar, um, trajectory to go up and play in all those same shows uh, i mean the same uh, cities and, and venues for the most part so it was this it was this shared widely and became you know kind of the norm for all the people that we knew um at least from down here um it was one of the comforts of being on the road is that we just we got to know certain places so well you know by playing them over and over again because of the really just because of the staff you know you know you know where to park and you know what's going on you know the lay of the land you're walking in the club for the third or fifth time to set up instead of that first time and it just feels so good because you already know everything and you know the people 
it felt like home, you know, to be at Hobo and to be at Maxwell's. And I know a lot of other bands feel this way, but Maxwell's like, they just, it was so, it was so fun that they didn't have a backstage. They just had the cellar and yeah, we just go kind of sit around and sit on top of empty kegs and things like that. Um, and then they would feed us, you know, in the restaurant earlier in the day. And it's just so nice. And um, and then the place would just be packed. And then in between sets or during dinner or whatever, there's a jukebox that's got our single on it. And, oh, God, it was just, it was always so fun and easy to be there. Such a legendary, legendary club, you know, like, like just the bands that, grace that stage from you know yourselves to right when it closed i th- actually it might be reopened now uh but but well who knows what happens now but yeah like such a, a legendary room like as as with all these rooms that we're kind of talking about yeah definitely it's it's surprising in many cases how, how long of a run you know so many so many places have had um, like the 40 watt club in Athens, we recorded something in there a week ago, a live stream. And I mean, it's fourth or fifth location for, um, that particular business, but it's been in that location, you know, all the way back into, um, the late eighties. And not only was I in pylon and on the stage there a lot, but then I DJed there like an awful lot for eight years. Uh, more than once a month for eight years. And then I started like this um, art film, uh, you know, projection uh, night that was once a month at the 40 Watt Club that went on for years. And just all the times that I've been in that that place because of stuff I was doing, not to mention going to see, to see bands. And, um, you know, I don't really get make it out uh, to the 40 Watt Club very much anymore. And so we went in there the other night, about a week ago, yesterday, I think. And it was just so, so beautiful to see it. It was all clean and all lit up for this show. And it had been, and Barry, the owner, and, uh, you know, of course, was the one that, that came down there to let us in. And it was so bittersweet to be in there because she said, this is the first time we've used this place since March 12th. And the floors, they just redone all their floors, like right before uh, March 12th, somewhere like close to that time. So the place is just beautiful and pristine as if it was just being preserved for some future date to be used again. So yeah, it was really nice to be in there, but it just, just really struck me like how much that feels like home to me, even though I don't, I'm not a regular there these days, but I'm sure did spend a lot of time there. So at the same time that all this stuff is going on with yourselves in Athens and this, you know, obviously the legendary Athens scene is kind of building. Is there a parallel scene kind of happening in Atlanta too? I think so. I mean, I don't really know much about it. Um, we had a great time in Atlanta, though. I mean, once we finally started playing, I mean, we didn't wait that long. You know, we, we put Atlanta off for a little while. We weren't, <clears throat> um, you know, we, when we were, when, once it was 
once once we were kind of cleared by everybody like you know in some way we we went over there to play and uh, it was always good for us i don't remember how many different venues we played because we mostly played at 688 club at 688 spring street and that's where most of the bands i ever went to see played you know unless they were bigger and I mean, we had other opportunities to play over there, like playing outdoors at Piedmont Park and playing at this smaller uh, venue in the front of the Fox Theater. And then we did get to open for Public Image Limited at the Agora. And we headlined at the Agora, which is a, a bigger theater type venue. But but really, 688 is what I remember the most because um, we would play two nights in a row uh, to a Friday and Saturday when we got booked. and um, I also went over there to see a lot of bands, you know, cause I, that was another cool part about it. Like Atlanta's, you know, far enough away that the two scenes don't blur together, but it's uh, close enough that it's, it's not that hard, you know, especially when you're young to, to drive over and go see a band. And I usually would have somewhere to stay. I could stay with family in, in Atlanta. <clears throat> if, uh, and so, you know, we just had a, again, just felt like home to us over there, especially at that club. But I don't really know that much about all the other bands, you know, uh, I don't remember. I mean, there was a lot of bands that I really liked and that were in Athens all the time, like Guadalcanal Diary, but they ended up moving to Athens. And the swimming pool cues, um, mostly just because of the, you know, the people involved that we've stayed in touch with them over all these years. Um, so, but there are a lot of other bands that were, that were more, um, more punk in nature for sure. I think they maybe had a, maybe they had more of a self-consciously punk scene in Atlanta. It's so amazing that given the population that Athens is the place that winds up with the much more legendary kind of storied scene, you know, not to diminish anything that came out of Atlanta in terms of bands, but it's just, it's just so fascinating that it, it was, you know, Athens over Atlanta. Yeah, I know. And then also people do say that there was a rivalry or a less than, you know, a less than supportive um, relationship between the two, um, the scenes of, of the two cities. Um, I don't know that we ever really felt that, but um, yeah, we 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 had a really good run at 688. There's like a, a kind of a, I mean, a pretty funny story where we we just completely burned our bridges with them. Though we pissed them off to no end, and it's just so it's just so crazy because Pylon was always so well behaved, and um, it's just amazing that something that we did was so outrageous that they that they just said you're never coming back here in fact they almost canceled our show but um <clears throat> so being art students and sort of you know a little precocious about it um we'd sit you know in um backstage and we just thought the graffiti was just you know disgusting like it, what we weren't amused by all the drawings of dicks and and things like that and um early on we were just resolved like we are not adding our name to any of this <laughs> you know if we ever get any stickers made we are not putting them on the toilet or you know we are just we just that's just not the way we do it right and so we concocted this idea like you know our 
you know, our graffiti, you know, well, just to backtrack, I had this like thing that was supposed to sound like a gang called the Scrapes, you know, and that was the name of the gang. This is also stupid, but is when we were in art school and what the Scrapes would do, because I was a Boy Scout and an Eagle Scout, we would go downtown to some closed up, you know, business whose windows had just been taped, you know, taped up, like flyered over, like, you know, 14 layers. And we'd peel it all off and bring buckets of soapy water and step ladders and wore gloves and had razor blades and everything. And we cleaned these windows, you know, of all of the posters. And we'd put like a tiny, tiny little sign down in the corner that said something like this, this clean window provided to you by the scrapes, you know. So we did something like that at 688, like, because we'd sit, when we were touring, we'd be like, yeah, if we were ever going to do graffiti, you know what our graffiti would be? We would like, we would just paint the damn walls and make them all like, you know, brand new again. Well, we always used to talk about it, but of course we never did it. And so one time we were in Atlanta and we were playing that two nights and we were at 688 on Friday night. And we started talking about it again. And then one of us is like, well, damn it. We always say this, but we never do it. This time, let's do it. So we made a plan and... um I think Vanessa and I went to Sears um, the next day or me and somebody and we bought drop cloths and paint rollers and rolling pans and um, brushes and uh, a very nice like Robin's egg blue or baby blue paint. And um, we came back all determined. We smuggled it all in because they had to walk right by the front door, come in the front door and go right by the office and, we go in there and we pulled and the place is big and we pulled all the furniture away from the walls and put down drop cloths and we just madly start going along like somebody's like cutting in up, at, up near the ceiling and somebody's cutting in down by the baseboards and and then we're starting to roll it and that every time we had a guest that wanted to come in they'd send them around to the dressing room and they'd knock on the door and it was locked and they'd say hey hey this is tony you have a guest out here and we're like okay we'll be there in a sec uh, thanks. And so we'd wait till he walked away and we'd let somebody in. And um, this happened like one too many times. And he finally said, open this door. What is going on in there? And so we finally had to let him in. And we had painted like two walls <laughs> and he lost it. <laughs> this was equivalent to him of us painting the Mona Lisa, baby blue. I mean, just absolutely violated his club his you know infrastructure his his dressing room he owned the damn play i mean he was a partner but he you know he got right up in each of our faces and yelled at each of us you know individually uh for quite a while and he said you know like what if i had snuck into your house and painted your living room monkey shit brown you know and then I, i'd say something stupid something smart like well we didn't use monkey shit brown we used a really nice baby blue you know and he just like so if it had been up to him we would not have performed that night <laughs> it, it, the, the place was packed right his partner steve may talked them out of that 
but it was clear when we settled up that night that we were not ever going to be welcome back. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, Michael, please know if you ever want to come back here and do a part two, you are always welcome. Back. <laughs> okay. Well, I hope you have a nice three hour slot for your show because by the time you finish talking to Vanessa, you'll have way too much, but good luck with it. I look forward to hearing it. Thank you, Michael, for coming on the show. And you heard right there, we're going to need another three hour slot because Michael will be back at some point for a part two down the line, but we will be back in a short couple blinks of the eye with Vanessa from Pylon. And as I said before, off the top, very different episodes, but yeah, fantastic episodes. Okay, that is it for me. Remember, as always, Black Lives Matter. The lives of indigenous people matter. We need to protect the the lives of trans people. Uh, Huge, huge election stuff. Let's just see how this all goes. Uh, In the U.S., of course, huge election stuff happening all over the world. But, you know, get involved. Still get involved. Sign up. Donate money if you can. Show up. It, it, it still goes on, you know? <laughs> Unfortunately, this stuff just doesn't end after one election. In fact, it's it's more important than ever that people still, you know, get involved in any way that they can and, and help fight fascism, help, you know? This, unfortunately, doesn't mean it's over, so we got to keep fighting on. Also, speaking of fighting on, remember to fight on and sign your organ donor cards because by the time they come looking for those organs, you're not going to need them. And, uh, and, and, you know, what a better way to kind of like give to people after the fact, you know, my uncle had a heart transplant and he's, is, is alive now and, and is living his life. And, you know, it's amazing to watch that happen. And so I, I really can't stress that enough. If you can, please sign your organ donor cards because, uh, you know, as I said, you're not going to need them when they come looking for them. Uh, I got to cheer this thing up because uh, that's pretty heavy to leave you on. So go out there and make your own culture. Anyone can do this stuff. Start a band, start a fanzine, make art, do something. Just just create, get yourself uh, you know, some sort of creative therapy going. I find it really helps me. You know, when I, when I get down, I draw a little bit and I, I don't know, it doesn't make it go away, but it, it uh, helps me kind of work through it a little bit, I find. So, you know, do something, create culture, and uh, wear a mask. Wear a mask. Stay safe, and I love you, and, yeah, see you on the other side. Or, I mean, next episode, which is, you know, that sounds really bleak. Oh, man, we're ending on a real downer on that one. No, we will see you for the amazing Vanessa episode. That is the next thing we will talk. Next time we will talk. Love you. Bye. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets and so much more download the app in virginia today and get 150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at bet mgm 
BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.